Congress, USDA, and the movies. Talk about an interesting career. Yes, we're talking about Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. Before Dan Glickman was Secretary of Agriculture in the Clinton administration, he was serving his fellow Kansans in the 4th Congressional District. His career has spanned Congress, USDA, and as noted, he was even chairman and CEO of the Motion Picture Association of America. And now he's chronicled that fascinating career in a new memoir he's calling Laughing at Myself, My Education in Congress, On the Farm, and At the Movies. Jennifer Latsky, editor of Kansas Farmer, recently talked with Glickman about his career and the new book. Let's check in on their conversation. Well, hi, folks. I'm Jennifer Latsky, editor of Kansas Farmer Magazine, and welcome to Around Farm Progress. Joining me today is former Secretary of Agriculture Dan Glickman, who is going to release his autobiography, Laughing at Myself, through the University Press of Kansas in June. Secretary Glickman is the former U.S. Representative of the 4th District of Kansas, former president of the Motion Picture Association of America, director of the Institute of Politics at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government, and lately he has been working for the Aspen Institute and Bipartisan Policy Center. Secretary Glickman, welcome to Around Farm Progress. Well, Jennifer, it's great to be with you. Well, sir, let's dive right in. Let's talk about your time serving Kansans. You first came to Congress in the late 70s, And as you write in the book, you were a Jewish man from Wichita representing decidedly rural Kansas with no ag background, and your first committee assignment was the Ag Committee. (laughs) So tell us us a little bit about that. You know, we were in the midst of the farm crisis, and then we had the, the Russian grain embargo that happened. That was a very rough time to learn about agriculture, wasn't it? Well, you know, it's funny. So when I was elected to Congress, and back then, Uh, Kansas was actually much more bipartisan than it is now. We had half the congressional delegation were Democrats. We had a Democratic governor and and Republican legislature and back and forth. And and, and there was a lot more bipartisanship than, frankly, there is now. But when I got elected, which was rather unexpected, I went on the Agriculture Committee and I had no agriculture background. My dad was in the scrap iron business and he was also in the oil business, too. So when I got but he was the one that's one of them who suggested I go on the um, uh, Agriculture Committee because when he was in the oil business, he used to have to go out into the countryside and get farmers to sign leases so he could drill wells. And he said, he used to tell me, he said, some of the finest people he ever met in his life were farmers. And my dad had this great sense of humor and they liked him. And he thought that the farmers were some of the more authentic people. And he says, I think you'll do a good job on that committee. And of course, like everybody else, I wanted to be on the Ways and Means Committee or the Appropriations Committee. I thought, But it turned out it was the best decision I ever made was to go on the Agriculture Committee because I got to be involved in farm policy, agriculture policy, and and I would have, you know, never been Secretary of Agriculture, obviously, if I wasn't on the Agriculture Committee. But it was a different time. And uh, people, uh, the problems were severe, but the... uh, there tended to be a lot more bipartisanship in th- that era. And so I was very close with Congressman Pat Roberts and Senator Bob Dole and, and others in the delegation. And we, when it came to agriculture, we worked almost as a total team. It was uh, not Republicans and Democrats. 
you know, I'm glad you brought up bipartisanship because as a child of Kansas farmers in the in the 70s and 80s and growing up, I went to the Kansas State Fair and I watched the Dan and Pat show or as Pat Roberts would say, the Pat and, Ro- and Dan's show. He was wrong, by the way, but whatever. You know. <laughs> um, I remember uh, watching you all with, of course, now the late Dr. Barry Flinchbaugh and you had such a good rapport with each other and there was that respect for each other even though you came from opposite sides of the aisle let's talk about bipartisanship then and where do we see bipartisanship now do we do we have any open doors for reaching across an aisle now well i still think in agriculture policy at least from the federal level there is more bipartisanship uh, than there is in many other areas so you know, when it comes to disasters or trade uh, or uh, farm policy generally, you'll see you'll tend to see more bipartisanship. And even when it comes to issues like uh, hunger and um, uh, food stamps, you'll see Republicans and Democrats working by and large across the aisle. So the combination of folks working on farm programs and hunger programs tend to bring coalitions together of Republicans and Democrats. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, I, I would say on a lot of other things, however, uh, the level of partisanship and in some cases toxic partisanship is much higher than it ever was when I was in Congress in the 1970s and 80s. And you talked about the grain embargo. Okay, so when President Carter, uh, president of the Democratic Party, my party, imposed a, an embargo on on grain uh, with respect to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, uh, there was a bipartisan across the board opposition to that. We worked together to try to mitigate that that impact. And it didn't matter uh, whether it was a Republican or Democratic president, if we thought it was wrong, we thought it was wrong. Today, uh, politics has become a lot more tribal. So if you're a Republican, whatever your president says is right. And if you're a Democrat, the same thing is true. And and uh, um, and so I I I, I think that uh, that attitude is unfortunate. It hurts the country. Um, it, it it makes it much more difficult to work on some of these big problems that that are necessary. But still, in the field of food and agriculture, we have more across the board working together than we do in most areas. You know, I'm glad that you um, that you said that, too, because it seems, um, you know, as I was taught, uh, everybody eats, you know, everybody has to have something on the on out of agriculture every day of their lives. And so um, every time I've I've what I learned from Barry Flinchbaugh, who was a a great educator from uh, Kansas State University and um, had extensive ag policy experience, he always said, you know, if you're going to find any agreements, it's going to be found on the Ag Committee, right? Yeah, you know, um, I have uh, I've often thought about the fact that some of my closest friends in Congress were people uh, I met on the, in the agricultural world. And we were always looked at as a place where we could, you know, end up working together on uh, regardless of what the issues. Now, that doesn't didn't mean there were conflicts because, you know, Kansas was largely uh, grain producing and livestock. But there were places in the country that were specialty crops, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, cotton, rice. Um, the, and, and, and so uh, there were conflicts. There were regional issues involved in agriculture and we had to work together to get them done. And then of course the Agriculture Committee had jurisdiction over 
almost all the feeding programs for the hungry. So here you had farm members of Congress working on food stamps and school lunch and women, infant and children. And it was kind of this ironic bridge that we made uh, so that, that uh, farmers and producers were involved in making a, far, a policy that helped poor people. And uh, some people found that strange, but I found it kind of a really beautiful part of what the American democracy was all about. So let's talk about um, writing farm bills because you were part of uh, writing the 1990 farm bill Then we had freedom to farm. Um, you know, writing farm bills from back then versus we're coming up on trying to craft the next farm bill legislation and you know, what, what are the, the differences that you see now? Um, is it more difficult to write a farm bill now? Is it easier to write a farm bill now? What, what, what do you think? I'd love to get your thoughts. Well, I, I don't know if it's easier or difficult. The time you're doing it, it always seems difficult. But, but uh, back then, you know, um, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, farm prices were very low. But the amount of money that the U.S. government was putting into agriculture was a fraction of what is being put in right now. So an average farm bill back in the, seven, the 77 farm bill might have cost $3 billion worth of farm commodity program payments. And today it may be $30 billion. Or uh, the government is providing a lot more assistance to farmers than it, than it used to uh, provide. For example, uh, we had the trade dispute that President Trump had with China and that produced uh, for a while a reduction, particularly in soybean prices, but in others as well. And so the government came up with a multi-billion dollar program to provide uh, program uh, payments for farmers. That's fairly new. That, that, that is the, the magnitude of government assistance to farmers is uh, much greater than it was uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Doesn't necessarily mean that every farmer is doing better. But, um, but the programs are, are today are much more farmer friendly financially wise than they were back then. We didn't have much of a crop insurance program back in the 70s and 80s. And now crop insurance is a very significant part of most producers' lives as they pr protect themselves against risk. And the government pays a very big part of the premium. So what you are ironically seeing today is much more government involvement in agriculture than we might have seen back in the days when I started. So, um, and that brings me to today when we're talking um, right now with, with President uh, Joe Biden and um, his push to have climate smart um, initiatives, especially in the, in the ag, um, in the ag department. Um, we've got now current Secretary Vilsack uh, talking about, you know, making sure that farmers not only have a seat at the table, but are incentivized to be participants in climate smart, um, you know, solutions. Uh, you were one of the, the earlier guys looking at agri organic agriculture and, and the benefits of that. And now, you know, we're talking about climate smart and regenerative ag, soil health, those type of things. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on, on where do you see um, opportunities for farmers today to participate in some of these programs and, and uh, maybe be able to um, you know, get some benefits from whatever's written for them? 
Well, I, first of all, it's a very good question. So uh, uh, um, environmental and climate uh, issues were low, lower priority 40 years ago than they are today. So the U.S. government has made climate, particularly under the Biden administration, but it was happening beforehand too, a much bigger part of agriculture. Soil health, as you talk about, carbon sequestration, uh, trying to reduce the amount of carbon and methane that's emitted uh, from farming practices, no-till agriculture, there a million precision agriculture, a million different practices, very much a part of agriculture. And what is, is good to see is, is that farmers um, I think at first we're resistant to this. They, they thought the government was going to tell them exactly what to do. But I think that most of these programs are going to be cooperative and collaborative, that farmers are going to have a seat at the table. I, the president even mentioned there was a line in the State of the Union message that talked about uh, no-till agriculture. I thought, oh my goodness, a president talking about no-till agriculture? I mean, who'd ever heard of that uh, before? But but climate is, is a, certainly a big, big issue globally across the government and agriculture is a part of it because truthfully agriculture does uh, provide some of the um, contaminants and carbon and methane and other places. So we have to be part of the solution. The other issue which is different than when I was first there is nutrition. And that is, is that what is the role of diet and nutrition in, in the health of the people? We. The U.S. government spends almost $200 billion a year treating type 2 diabetes for Medicare patients. Now, that's not the farmer's fault. Uh, that's, you know, what we eat and what's advertised on TV and everything else. But, but more and more, I think, uh, research in agriculture is going to focus on growing the kind of crops and the kind of livestock products that are healthier for people. So climate and nutrition are two kind of focuses that are that we didn't really deal with very much in the early days, what I call the prehistoric days when I served in Congress. Well, but, you know, when you served in Congress, there were still a large number of your colleagues that came from rural districts or at least had some connection to agriculture in their districts. And now that has that has changed. There's there's a lot more urban centric folks than there are ag centric folks. And, and so it seems to me as a layperson that um, if we can have something along the lines of climate smart um, incentive, incentives for, for farmers, you have buy-in from those urban colleagues that are going to be voting for this bill. Is, am, I, am I off base there? No, you're, it's a very good point. So if you look at the House of Representatives, there are probably 15% of the House that have what I call strong agricultural districts. 85% of congressional districts are urban and suburban. So the politics do not favor uh, necessarily production agriculture. Now in the Senate, it's different because every Senator represents large agricultural areas. Uh, even, even states like Rhode Island and Connecticut uh, have uh, strong agricultural uh, uh, production facilities. They may be different than in Kansas. Um, but that's another reason why it's important for farmers to work with urban interests and in, in trying to deal with a lot of these problems. And it's also another reason why it's so important that the Department of Agriculture continues to have jurisdiction over both farm production and nutrition programs, because that also brings a bridge 
uh, to pull people together. And it was our own Senator Dole uh, from Kansas, carried on by Pat Roberts, by the way, who were very responsible for this bridge between urban and rural interests. And, and it really is important in keeping our farm program strong. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up Senator Dole, Senator Roberts, um, Senator Nancy Landon Kassebaum. Um, you know, you guys were were the big names. And I meant to mention her as well, too. I didn't mean to leave her out. OK, you can't leave Senator. No, 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 absolutely not. OK, <laughs> um, you you all were very big names when I was growing up. Um, you were mentioned in around the dinner table at the Latsky household. Um, politics was was spoken at our at our you know family dinners, and and Dad would ask us, "Well, what do you think about this type of thing?" When you were working together, even though you guys weren't all on the same um, in, in the same party, uh, what how did how did you make it work? What was part of the magic there that people should look at and go, maybe we can replicate that today. Well, I think you got to look at the bigger picture of politics today. So uh, today politics is 24 hour media. Most of the media is what I call, or a lot of it is toxic media. It's uh, you either listen to one Fox News or MSNBC, it's right or left. Uh, the media back then tend to be composed in television of three networks. Radio was really important back then. It's still, in my judgment, it's very important. Small town newspapers were really important in getting the message out. You know, the newspaper business in this, as you know, is is really been hurt in this country. So people are getting their information from advocacy organizations that pull them apart rather than put them together. And I think that Dole and Kassebaum and Roberts and myself and others had the benefit of not having those toxic influences around. And we could actually, there was the incentive for us to come together for what was best for Kansas, Kansas farmers, Kansas folks who lived in cities. And that was true all over the country. And, and, and also the amount of money in politics. So, um, you know, to run a congressional race today, it costs millions and millions of dollars which means that you got to go out and do nothing but raise money. That was the case 40 or 50 years ago. You had to raise a little bit of money, but, but uh, and going out and raising money all the time takes away from your job. And it also, by and large, people who give you money, they do expect something in return. I'd like to say it's not the case, but it probably is the case. So we, we didn't really have quite those burdens back then. I'm not telling you life was perfect then. It wasn't. We had our conflicts, but uh, but but by and large, in the areas of agriculture, we tended to get along pretty well together. Um, so, what, speaking of conflicts, um, you know, as I read through your your advanced copy of the book, and by the way, did pretty good for for you know one writer to another. You did well, pretty good. Well, sir. for a first term writer, I guess I my sixth grade English teacher did okay, right? <laughs> There you go. <laughs> well, I got to say, there were things in the book that I, I just didn't realize had happened, or I was so young that it, it didn't really dawn on me that that was as big of a, an event as, as, it, as it was. Today, let's, um, one of the things that, that kind of jumped out at me was um, the Pigford litigation. And, and I, I guess I didn't realize that you know, racial disparities at USDA had gone back that far. 
and I'm ashamed to say it. I'm ashamed to say that I, I just didn't realize that that had happened. And, and we were still discussing this back then. And we're, we're still dealing with the situation today. Um, what are some lessons that we could benefit from your, your wisdom on there? You know, share, share some wisdom with us on, on that. Yeah, yeah. The Pickford litigation, of course, had to do with uh, black farmers claims of discrimination against the Department of Agriculture, which went back, let's see, 100 years. Basically, it was, was post-reconstruction issues when, uh, it, in many cases, the Department of Agriculture uh, did not represent the most progressive forces as it, as it dealt with, you know, racial issues. And, you know, it's funny, when I served on the Agriculture Committee, there, it, the committee was almost 100% white. There were no people of color on the Agriculture Committee, very few women on the Agriculture Committee. And um, so when I got to the Department of Agriculture, when I was sworn in my first day there, I walked into the department and there were about three or 400 African-American farmers that were picketing and demanding equal justice. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I was in Congress 18 years. I had no idea what, what their concerns were. We had not held one hearing. I, put, I talk about this in the book. We had not held one hearing on the issue of discrimination in farm programs, particularly in the South. And uh, I learned a lot from it. And, you know, the issues are still ongoing, although, although they, I think Secretary Vilsack and others have made good faith efforts to try to uh, do as, as best he can to dealt, deal with it. But, but uh, it did strike me, going back to my old days on the committee, that uh, we did not even talk about any of these issues. And now they are obviously much more dominant uh, and uh, we're recognizing the importance of having diversity in agriculture, having women in agriculture, having African Americans, Hispanic Americans. It's, it's um, and 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 th these are issues which were not real issues in the 1970s that certainly are right now. So I got to ask, um, you know, we we make a big deal of a, a letter in the desk for the next president. Did you leave a letter in the desk for the next uh, Secretary of Ag? It, did you? Is there a Secretary of Ag Facebook group chat or something that y'all get together and you talk these things out? <laughs> uh, well, there's a little fraternity slash sorority. Uh, we did. Ann Veneman was my successor, and she was the Secretary of Agriculture for the state of California. And I, I did leave her a letter. I also left her just curiously some mustard packets because I like to eat, I like mustard on everything. And so I, I, I figured a little humor might do well. And she and I get along very well. But yeah, there's, I'd say there's kind of a, a fraternity of, an, or of, of former secretaries of agriculture and, and um, also the teams that work for us. We, I, I must say that the, uh, Everybody, a lot of people complain about federal bureaucrats, but the folks that work at USDA, the, the people, the Farm Service Agency, Rural Development, the conservation people were, and others were some of the best people I ever met in government. And, and, and they really wanted to do the job well and they wanted to serve their people well. And that, that, that changed my whole view about government because, you know, we were raised to believe that government was kind of bad unless it maybe did something specifically to help us. But at, at least with respect to USDA, we had a really fine team of people there working their best at the state level and at the federal level to 
try to make agriculture policy as best as we, as we could. Yeah, I, I, my, when I was in the Carl class, um, it, was, it was really impressed upon us when we went up to Washington, D.C., that there are, you know, only 435 and, and 100 folks, you know, that actually do the votes. But it's the people working behind the scenes, the people working in the offices, the staffers and the agencies that actually make the, everything go smoothly. <laughs> and so um, staffers are, are key to what we have. And, and I'm so glad that you brought them up. Um, let's switch gears here a little bit and let's talk about moving to, you know, moving into working for Hollywood uh, with the motion picture industry. What sort of values, common sense did you take as a Kansas boy, as somebody that had worked with farmers and ranchers, you know, good salt of the earth people? What did you take with you to go work for Hollywood? <laughs> well, let's see, I had to handle it very carefully, Jennifer. <laughs> but, you know, it was like, um, um, I was, of course, uh, when I was in Hollywood, I was not a star. Uh, you never saw me on the uh, Academy Awards presenting awards or anything else. I was basically the uh, kind of the chief lobbyist for Hollywood for about six years. They were they were concerned about uh, intellectual property laws, trade, exports. Um, I used to tell people when they'd say, well, what are your qualifications for this job? I said, well, I used to grow popcorn and now I sell it. And they thought, oh, that's hysterical. That's very funny. But, but you know, um, I, uh, uh, I met the then head of the Motion Picture Association. His name was Jack Valenti. He had been around for a long time. He liked me. When he retired, he said, well, Glickman, you are in the agriculture business, but you know about exports. You know about dealing with foreign countries. You know how important they are for America. He said, I think you can, you can do a good job at this. And so it was a lot different than agriculture. And quite honestly, I liked the agriculture job better. But um, I, did, I was able to travel extensively. I love the movies. I've probably seen 10,000 movies in my life. And of course, during COVID, I've seen probably 10,000 more just on television. My son's a movie producer. Um, uh, my wife works in that business. So it was a lot different than agriculture. But in some sense, I was doing the same thing. I was selling American products overseas. And uh, I like doing that. Well, but there's also some, um, you know, you mentioned inter intellectual property rights. You know, we, we face that in agriculture with our intellectual property on our, on our seeds and our technology and our traits and things. There are some ways that, that um, things cross over and, and make sense. So I'm, I'm so glad that you and, and, and I have to tell you that when I would go over, oftentimes, I remember being in China, but when I would travel, and of course, I traveled to Secretary of Agriculture when I was there. But when I went in the motion picture business, when I would travel and I'd meet foreign leaders, in many cases, they were more interested in farming and agriculture than they were in the movies. And it kind of opened the door for me uh, because a lot of these leaders, particularly in like China and, and some of the uh, Soviet Union and now Russia, a lot of them got their start on farms and in rural areas. And so they felt a sense of identification with me that they might not have if I had been some really glamorous, handsome movie star. Although you can argue whether I'm glamorous or handsome afterwards. <laughs> well, um, let's talk a little bit about um, the book. Your book is out June 6th, if I remember correctly. What prompted you to write the book now? What you know, um, I, 
I, I, a little bit of ego that I wanted to tell my story. I wanted my family and friends to know what it was. But, you know, I had this strange career. My grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe. I became a, you know, I first was on the Wichita School Board, but I became a congressman, then secretary, the kind of the chief farmer of America, so to speak. And then I headed the motion, the movie industry, at least the lobbying side of the movie industry. And I, I, I just, this is kind of a, uh, a, a unique American story that here I was as kind of this Jewish kid from Kansas without much a, a involvement in, in history and agriculture. And I really was able to do all these different things. And I think the underlying theme of the book, however, is the need for humor in life, especially self-deprecating humor. What I find is, is, is that people who are able or secure enough to make fun of themselves and to laugh can kind of reduce tensions. And what I have found among leaders in America in all fields in the last 20, 30, 40 years is so few people can laugh at themselves. And, and especially when funny things happen to you. You know, I was, I was the most attacked member of the cabinet. All right, they threw things at me. Naked protesters threw things at me and tofu cream pies were thrown at me. And, and all sorts of things. And, and I was able to, you know, make jokes about it and uh, tell stories about it. And, and, and humor is disarming. It's a, it's a way to kind of bring people together. And it's interesting, a couple of people we mentioned, Bob Dole and Pat Roberts, both have this great sense of humor. And I think that has had a lot to do, had a lot to do with their success. But in politics today, you do not find a lot of people at the top that had great senses of humor. And I'm not, this is not meant to be an overly partisan comment. Okay, I won't. But our previous president, I won't mention his name, but I think we know who he is. Uh, some people like him, some people don't like him. But he wasn't a very funny guy. And when he tried to be funny, it was usually to make fun of other people. It was usually to put people down. And what I thought about that is our great presidents, uh, starting with Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan and Franklin Roosevelt and John Kennedy, and there are others, were always people that were not afraid to make fun of themselves and to bring laughter and humor to people's lives. And I found in my own life, all through my life, that was kind of a secret to my success and how I was always able to get out of a jam by doing that kind of thing. You know, um, I was going to ask you as a, as a one last question, what was the favorite thing that you got thrown at you? What was, what was the one thing that really stands out, but I'm guessing it might be the tofu cream pie. Well, uh, there are two things. Somebody threw a tofu cream pie at me at a nutrition conference and they called me a pimp for the meat industry. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, well, that's all right. It could be called worse things. But the most interesting thing was I was at the World Food Summit in Rome and the Pope had just spoken and Fidel Castro and President Clinton and a whole bunch of protesters threw, stripped naked and threw genetically modified seeds at me and and were written on their bodies. Of course, I didn't look, but were written on their bodies. No gene beans and the naked truth. And the, the, those were a couple of the kind of things they really make for good stories, to be honest with you. But they actually did happen to me. Oh, those heady days of the first GMO um, issues. And, and now look at where we're at, where we've got um, people talking about fake meats and 
and uh, you know whether we're we're going to have beef in in on the plate or not. <laughs> I, I kind of miss those days of, of the late '90s and early 2000s, to be quite honest. Yeah, well, you know, the one good thing is the the science is going to help us really make these challenges. And, you know, I, we're always going to eat meat and hopefully our products are going to be more nutritious and, and, and uh, we're going to learn all sorts of things about what's good for you and what's not so good for you. But one final story I'll tell you, because I know you're running out of time, was the time that every member of the, can, of the, of the cabinet were what's called the designated survivor. And so that was when, you know, the whole Congress met it wasn't like the other night because they didn't have very many people there. And they took one member of the cabinet and you had to go away from Washington. In the case that the whole town blew up, you know, you had one and there was a TV show called Designated Survivor with Kiefer Sutherland. So I was the Kiefer Sutherland one night and I went up to New York and I had all the military people around me and the nuclear codes. And we went to my daughter's apartment and and then we went out, my daughter and I went out to dinner. And after dinner, there was a giant snowstorm and a sleet storm. And, and, the, and the State of the Union was over and the president had already gone back to Washington. So I was on my own. And we were in a giant sleet storm. There was no such thing as Uber or Lyft or any of those in New York. We walked 12 blocks back to her apartment in this snowstorm. I had more hair than I did now. So it, kind of, it tended to stick to my hair. I looked at my daughter and I said, you know, Amy, I said, three hours ago, I was about the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and we can't even get a cab now. And it was this great story about how life can go up, it can go down, and you just got to be ready for it all. There you go. Well, as we close, Secretary Glickman, any final thoughts that you want to leave tomorrow's leaders with? Um, because you've had an amazing career that spanned all sorts of leadership positions. Any, any final thoughts? I'll give you the thought that my mother used to tell me, and it's also in the book. And that is, she says, you have two ears and one mouth for a simple reason. And you think about that. And uh, you don't always have to be pontificating. And you're going to learn by listening. And sometimes you might find that what somebody else is saying you don't agree with might ultimately end up making some sense. And that, that has tended to be a credo for me, in addition to being able to laugh at myself. Uh, listening is a real important part of leadership. And so that would be the other thing that's been big in my life. Well, thank you, Secretary Glickman. Thank you for joining us today on Around Farm Progress. Um, sir, where can they find the book when it comes out? When it comes out, either through the University of Kansas Press, because that's who's publishing it. And so I, I don't have an address, but it's available online or Amazon. You can buy anything on Amazon, even a Glickman book you can buy on Amazon. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Secretary Glickman, for joining us today. Folks, be sure to watch for an upcoming story um, uh, in the issues of uh, Kansas Farmer and Farm Progress. Um, we will see you down the road. Thank you so much, uh, Secretary Glickman. It's been great, Jennifer. Thanks for asking me to be a part of your show. I especially like the sole survivor story, but uh, as you've heard, Secretary Glickman has done many things, and it sounds like that book is a winner. Thanks to Jennifer M. Latsky from Kansas Farmer for talking to the Secretary. We appreciate her work for the podcast. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States with editors from the Farm Progress team and experts in our industry. 
Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as farm futures, beef, national hog farmer, and feedstuffs. And of course, the Farm Progress show and Husker Harvest Days. And you still have time to register for the 2021 Farm Futures Business Summit and Ag Finance Boot Camp. You can learn more at farmfuturesummit.com. And you can save 20% if you use the promo code FARMFUN, all one word, when you register. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening. <music>